text for this afternoon is Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be studying verses 1 through 7, and this is the word of Almighty God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Pray with me, please, friends. God, here's what we say. We surrender to your lordship and we surrender to your word this day. Take our lives and change them that they might be pleasing to you. Do the work that only you can do to make us into people who give honor and glory to your name. I have no doubt, Lord, that this text will pierce some of us. I pray that we will be pierced toward grace and following Christ. Let us find the godly sorrow that leads to repentance that leads to life. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. After Paul focused us on the gospel, as I mentioned to you earlier in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, he called believers to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called, beginning in Ephesians chapter 4. Three chapters of gospel, then chapters of command. Paul began chapter 4 by calling us to preserve the unity of the church. He called us to put off sin. He called us to put on godly practices. We saw that we are to avoid lying, ungodly anger, theft, evil speech, and hateful hearts. We are to put on, in their place, honesty, reconciliation, hard work, giving, encouraging speech, kindness, compassion, and, well, we spent two sermons talking about putting on forgiveness. Do you guys remember that, by the way, in, back in the month of maybe March or something like that? It's been a long time, hasn't it? Well, we're now turning to chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, but the context of our text is still the very same. We're still learning how to live to please the Lord because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a hard, broken, messed up world, and there are many temptations, great and small, all around us. 
God wants you, and God wants me, and God wants your children, and God wants my children to learn how to avoid temptation, to resist temptation, to obey God's word, and to follow him faithfully. So we're going to look at things to, again, put into our lives and things to take out of our lives as we continue seeking to honor the Lord even as we live in a very fallen world. And I want you to understand from the outset, we are going to be clear about things in this message that are sinful. But listen to me. Even when we talk about things that are sinful, we never promote cruelty or hatred toward those who are not submitted to the Word of God. Yes? With me? We know that we are never the judges. The Lord, the Lord our God is the judge. What we seek to do is only to uphold the righteous standard of our God. And friends, we will love all people because all people are created by God in God's image and for God's glory. And we will call all people to turn away from sin and to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. And we will call all people who have come to Jesus Christ for salvation. We will call them to grow as a disciple. We will do our best to teach them to obey everything that the Lord Jesus has commanded throughout the entirety of the Bible. We will teach them to obey as best we can. And that will call people to repent of sin. If you are a note taker, there will be four points that we will find in this text. So let's get started. You all ready? All right, number one, imitate the love of Christ. Imitate the love of Christ. Look at verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The therefore that opens this little section, it's a little summarizing word. We've heard put off sin. We've heard put on righteousness. And we saw lots of examples in chapter 4 of what that looks like, but now Paul ties it all together. What should we do? We should be imitators of God. That's a way to wrap up that previous section. It ties it up into a little bundle and makes it a goal, right? If you looked at the end of chapter 4 and those commands that I said that God gave us, they fit, don't they? God doesn't lie, does he? One of you noticed. God doesn't lie, right? Well, then we shouldn't either, correct? If God doesn't lie, we don't lie. That's how it's supposed to work. God does not have unrighteous anger, nor should we. God does not steal. God does not speak rotten, nasty words. God does not have a hate-filled heart. God is honest. God forgives. God reconciles people to himself. God gives to people who do not deserve his kindness. God is kind and compassionate and gracious and good. And so if we do what we saw in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 a few months ago, we will be imitating our God. And here's something interesting. The, the Greek word there for imitate, when it says to imitate God, be imitators of God, it's the same word from which we get the English word mimic. And the idea is that you are supposed to be Christian, someone who behaves in such a way to mimic or look like God. 
If you study theology, I'll give you a couple theology words here. These aren't hard ones. You will find a couple categories for kinds of attributes of God. God has attributes we call incommunicable attributes, incommunicable attributes, and that means that they are characteristics of God's which you and I cannot imitate. You know, there's things that God is you can't be, right? For example, God has no creator. You cannot be uncreated, can you? No. You cannot be omnipresent as God is, right? How many of you are in this room right now? How many of you are also at home? Not, no, right? Again, how many of you are in this room right now? How many of you are at Starbucks? No, you're not omnipresent. God is. You can't mimic that. You are not unchanging as God is. You change. God doesn't. Because for God to change would be for God to go from worse to better or better to worse, and God cannot do so. You are not triune as God is. None of those things are going to be yours. But there are attributes of God that are what we call communicable attributes. And those mean that they are attributes that you can have too. You can share in those attributes. God is good, loving, merciful, compassionate, patient, and so much more. And we can imitate every last one of those attributes. Paul says we are to imitate God as beloved children. Have you ever seen a child and just known, I mean right away known, whose kid it is? I mean, right now, if we had a child, and we know it will never happen, but right now, if we had a child misbehave, every mother in the room would look at that child and know exactly who its daddy was. And the daddy would get the blame, because that's how this works, even on Father's Day, right, men? I had a friend who once said, you know, it's funny, Mother's Day rolls around and you get the sermon about how wonderful mothers are, and Father's Day rolls around and we get the sermon about how awful and how dads need to shape up. So... Um, they're probably right, by the way. Um, but you look at a kid and you can see, right? Sometimes a little boy will have his dad's facial expressions. My kids do my eyebrows. Right? Yes. Sometimes a little girl will talk just like her mom, right? Same gestures, same hands, same face. I would love my children to have my wife's kind and giving nature. It would probably be good for my children to avoid most of my personality for their own good. But I am sure that you can imagine a child who looks at their parent, sees their parent, and acts like their parent. We're called by God to be imitators of our Heavenly Father. And that means, Christian, that how are you going to do that? How does a child know how to imitate mom or dad? They watch them. They study them. They know them. And Christian, if you're going to imitate God, you need to study God. Right? You need to know God. You need to see what God is like. And you need to treasure what God is like. And you need to see what attributes of God's character you can bring into your own life so that you look more and more like your Heavenly Father, like a little child might imitate his parents. So here's a question to ask yourself, Christian. 
Think with me on this one, okay? If a person saw you in your behavior, if a person saw you in your commitments, in your language, if a person saw you in your daily life, whose kid would they think you are? That's kind of piercing, isn't it? Bring chapter 4 back into consideration. Does your mouth mark you as a child of God? Does your giving mark you as a child of God? Does your compassion, does your heart aching for other people whose hearts ache, does that mark you as a child of God? Does your willingness and eagerness to forgive mark you as a child of God? Does your character look like you're mimicking your father? Then verse 2 goes on to help us to see how to imitate God. He says, walk in love. Walk worthy of your calling by walking in love. Walk in love. How? By walking like Jesus. Well, what is love? We need to know what love is, don't we? Love is a deep and abiding commitment to do another person good. Love is a deep and abiding commitment to do another person good, even if it's costly to you. Love is me saying I will do what is ultimately for your good, even if I have to lay down my rights to do it. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for us is most on display, friends, in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Because there the Lord chose to bring us salvation, to give us the ultimate good. But that good came at an extreme cost. Jesus left heaven. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. And he died as a sacrifice for our sins. As Paul said, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When Paul talks about Jesus giving himself up as a fragrant offering, he's pointing us back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Because in many cases, God said that the animal that was sacrificed to him was to be burned and that the Lord would be pleased with the aroma of the offering. See, Leviticus chapter 1 verse 9 is a single example. And Jesus, like a perfect sacrifice from the Old Covenant system, offered himself completely to rescue us from our sin. You guys know the sacrificial system in all of its components is a pointer to the perfect and finished work of Jesus. We've sinned against God. We deserve the wrath of God. Jesus, who never sinned, offered himself to God in our place. When Jesus went to the cross, he shed his blood to cover our sins. And he gave himself to take our punishment. Jesus soothed the anger of God that was against us due to our sin. And how did he do it? He soothed the anger of God against us by means of a sacrifice. That, by the way, is what the word, the word propitiation means. To change someone's anger to favor by means of a sacrificial offering. Because of the perfect life, and sacrificial death of Jesus, 
The stench of our sin against God is replaced with the sweet aroma of the perfection of Christ. Friends, what Jesus has done is both lovely and loving. So I will ask you, have you received that grace of Jesus? We're sinners against God, all of us. We need Jesus to pay the price for our sins if we're going to be forgiven. And if you want to be forgiven by God, you have to entrust your very soul to Jesus. You have to turn away from sin. You have to turn from thinking you're the boss or master of your own life. And you surrender to the Lord who has loved you more sweetly than you've ever thought of loving anybody else. Come to Jesus, be saved, and you will know what love is. And you who know what it's like to be forgiven, imitate the God who made you. Imitate the God who saved you. Put on righteous behaviors. Put on godly attitudes so that you can look like your heavenly Father. Walk in love to look like Jesus. Now, y'all, I want you to know, that little passage right there is a breath of fresh air. We have been reminded of the love of God. That's good, right? We have been reminded of the sweet sacrifice of Jesus to save our souls, and that's good, right? This should motivate you and me to want to follow God and obey His commands. And now Paul is going to show us something to take out of our lives, a sin that is the opposite of love. A sin that is the opposite of loving. Point number two, battle against sexual immorality. Battle against sexual immorality. Verses three and four. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I want to establish a couple truths for us that we should all agree upon. I want you to work with me on this, okay? God is good, yes? God is perfect, yes? Yes. Okay. God's ways are perfect, yes? Yes. God designed humanity and his plans for our flourishing are perfect, yes? yes? On the other hand, sin does us great harm. Sin steals from us our joy. Sin kills. Sin destroys. Sin, my sin, your sin, hurts us and hurts others. If we know God is good and God's ways are best, and if we know that sin does us all great harm, we should be eager to follow God's ways when it comes to every aspect of life, because we want good and not harm. And friends, no area of your life can be off limits to God. That includes your sexuality. 
If we are to love other people as the Lord loves, if we are to imitate our God, if we are to mimic the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, one of the things that we must do away with is sexual sin. Now, the words of verses 3 and 4 are not complicated. They are not unclear. The word sexual immorality there is the word porneia. It's a word that refers to all kinds of sexual sin. It's where we get the word pornography from. The word impurity that's there means dirtiness, moral filth. It's more than just evil physical activities, but it's all sorts of unclean sexual thinking and speaking and behaving. Then in a rather strange-seeming turn to some of us, we get the word covetousness or greed. We'll come back to that next point. Then in verse 3, Paul is clear that all forms of sexual immorality are off-limits for Christians. Sexual immorality dishonors God. It hurts us. It hurts others. There is no love to be found in immoral sexual behavior. Stop and let me say that to you again because you've got to believe this, friends. There is no love. There is no actual love to be found in immoral sexual behavior. Because if we're violating the word of God, we cannot be loving each other at the same time. Does that make sense? Now, in case you're not sure what is acceptable or unacceptable here, biblical sexual morality is not difficult to understand. God designed humanity as male and female. Any sexual desire or sexual activity that is between people of the same sex, the same gender, is rebellion against God. And it is rebellion against God's design. God designed human beings to enter into marriage, which is a lifelong covenant commitment between one man and one woman. Any sexual behavior outside of the bonds of biblical marriage is rebellion against God. Now, we saw in the Old Testament, by the way, there were some people that entered into marriages that involved a man and more than one wife. That was a behavior that always led to trouble. It never was the ideal. The New Testament is super clear. God's intention is that marriage is to be the union of one man and one woman for life. God is clear that sexual immorality is not even to be named among us. Now, that's not God saying, don't preach about this behavior. That'd be weird for him to write it, but say, don't tell anybody. What God is saying is, in your life, there should not be even one little hint of immoral sexual behavior. There should not be an ounce of that in you or me. If you are married, be faithful to your spouse. Keep yourself for your spouse only as you swore to God you would do the day you got married. If you are unmarried, honor God by choosing not to participate in any sexual activity with any person until you're married. And don't be foolish. This involves more than things you do with your body. Allowing yourself to watch sexually sinful materials is sin. Sexually explicit films, pornography, sexually immoral books, all of them are out of place for the people of God. 
Tim Challies once wrote a post about this, and he said, you know, some people say, well, the love scenes in the movie that I'm watching, they're not showing a whole lot of body parts, so that they should be okay, right? He asked the question, I don't know, let me ask you this question. Would you be comfortable looking through a window at a couple doing what you see the couple on the screen doing? If you would say, no, that's kind of gross, then maybe you should think about what you do in your television or your phone. Not a bad question, is it? Notice how Paul takes it further in verse 4. Finally get to verse 4. Nor shall there be filthiness. The word filthiness is a word that means obscenity, indecency, baseness. It has to do with that which is shameful. There's no room for obscenity, dirtiness in how we talk or how we think or how we behave. Paul hits particularly at our speech when he said, there must also not be foolish talk. This is a good word. The Greek word there is morologia. Now, that combines the word, the moral part of that, that's the word for stupid or moron, and logia, which is the word for speech. So he's saying, I, God forbids us from having moronic speech. And since we've just been talking about sexual immorality here and obscenity, it's clear that he's talking about the low speech of the foul-mouthed gutter talker. And you guys know exactly what that is, don't you? But... In case you think only the lowbrow sexual language is out of place, Paul also forbids a thing he calls here crude joking in the English translation. But the word behind the phrase crude joking is literally a word that only means well-turned. By simple definition, all it has to do with is a comment that is well-placed, clever, perhaps quick. This word could be used for any quick, witty comeback. But in context, Paul's talking about sexual humor and speech. So he's saying, do not have a ready turn of humor. Do not have a quick turn of wit when it refers to sexually immoral matters. Christians, we are not supposed to be the people who are quick to turn topics dirty with our joking. Now, let's roll this all up into a ball. Sexual immorality, impurity, filthiness, foolish talking, crude joking are out of place for Christians and should not be named among us. Christian love, Christian love in life includes sexual purity in marriage. Now, friends, there is nothing, absolutely nothing unclear in those verses. Did you hear any words there that you thought, I just don't understand that? That wasn't the problem, was it? There's nothing unclear here. There has been a call to love like Jesus in verses 1 and 2. And here in verses 3 and 4, we see that all sexual immorality, all dirtiness, all nasty talk, all lowbrow speech, all dirty joking, all of it is supposed to be out of the Christian's life. Y'all know from a very early point in human history, the devil tried to get God's people to destroy themselves and destroy the world through sexual sin. Read Genesis 4 and Genesis 6 and you'll see it. The devil knows that there are few sins out there that tempt us so much, so easily. He also knows that there are few sins out there that become so deeply personal and so incredibly harmful to us. So the devil does everything he can to tempt humanity into rebellion against God and God's purposes by tempting us toward sexual immorality. 
Christians battle, battle against sexual immorality. Guys, take this seriously. This is a big deal to God. And there is no room for you to give yourself leeway here. How strongly did Jesus speak about sexual sin and the need to fight for purity? Because we love Jesus, right? Matthew chapter 5, 27 through 30. Here's the words of Jesus. You've heard that it was said, do not, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus said, if there's anything in your life that tempts you toward sexual sin, take radical action to remove it from your life. No, he's not telling you to actually participate in physical self-mutilation. He's telling you, take the fight against sexual sin super seriously. So let's hear him, Christians. Let's not be ashamed of the fact that the world does not understand why its standards are not our standards. Let's not, let's not be ashamed of that, but instead let's battle in our own lives and in our own families for the purity, for the good of ourselves and for the good of others. Now, let me say something to y'all you need to hear. God is sweet and God is gracious. The Lord Jesus Christ came to die for all the sins of all the people who will ever come to him. And if you are in Christ, his blood has covered your sins. And if you're like many people here, you've got things in your past that you wish weren't there. Maybe they are only things you've seen. Maybe they're only things you've heard or read. But for many of us, they include evil things we've actually done. Let's run to Jesus for forgiveness. Let's find cleansing in Jesus even as we battle to honor the Lord from today forward. No better day to start than today, right? And if there's something that you're struggling with, if you need help, I want you to know it's safe to come talk to me. I want you to know you're not going to be able to say something to me that just because I'm a pastor I won't have heard of or thought of. You're not going to shock me. It's safe to come talk to the elders of the church. Maybe you're struggling with personal immorality. Maybe you're dealing with the frequent use of pornography. Maybe you're dealing with same-sex attraction. Maybe there's something else you're going through. Come talk to us. And we will do everything we can to help you turn away from sin and honor the Lord. 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Is that true? 
Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That one's true too. Now, let's go back to the two words that I think feel a little out of place in verses 3 and 4. Look back at them again. Point number three, you still awaken with me? All right. Point three, defeat greed with gratitude. Defeat greed with gratitude. Verses three and four said again, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, there's the word that stands out, must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor coarse jo- or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Verse 3, in the list of three things that we are not to have in our lives, not named in our lives, there are two words for sexual sin, and then the third word is the word covetousness, which I'm going to keep using the word greed for because that really gets covetousness pretty well covered. And by the way, this is not the only time you see that word used in a list of sexual sins, interestingly. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And again, there's nothing unique about the word for covetousness or greed. But in its context, it's telling us something about sexual sin that many people don't understand. What does it mean to be greedy? To be greedy means you desire to possess a thing that is not yours to possess, right? Greedy people who are greedy for money want money that is not their money. They want money too much. They want money they've not earned. That's what greed is. Well, in this context, the context of sexual sin, it is to desire a person who is not yours to desire or to be overly focused on having your desires met. So to use the word greed here, covetousness here, is a way that Paul shows you that sexual immorality is a sin in which we treat people as if they are things. Rather than seeing one's sexuality as a beautiful gift from God in its proper place, people who are greedy see other people as objects to be used to fulfill our desires as a means to a desired end, as disposable, like those one-time-use masks. Then in verse 4, we see the alternative to put on in place of your sinfulness. Rather than filling your life with obscenity, foolish talk, or crude joking, you are to have a life full of thanksgiving. And again, that may feel out of place in the context, but maybe not as much as you think. Because Paul shows us that sexual immorality is a greed-filled idolatry. Sexual sin includes that you are not content with the circumstances of your life that the Lord has given you. Sexual sin runs against the standards of God as you have a longing for physical pleasure or emotional affirmation of some sort, and you'll throw off the standards of God to get what you want. And with that in mind, gratitude to God for what God is and for what God has given you is indeed the perfectly logical alternative to greed. Think about this. The husband, grateful to God for his wife, 
will not commit the idolatrous evil of greedily staring at pornographic images. Right, men? The wife, grateful to God for her husband, will not daydream about being swept up in an illicit affair with a mysterious stranger in a romance novel. Right, ladies? The single person, grateful to God for the gospel and for God's commands, will not rush off into rebellion against the Lord and his ways. The person, grateful to God for making us male and female, will not oppose God by denying gender or embracing homosexuality. In truth, gratitude for God is the solution to covetousness and greed. Gratitude defeats greed, and gratitude is the solution for defeating the idolatry of sexual sin. The more you love and are thankful to God, the more God will free you from sexual immorality. With that said, Christian, here's an assignment for you. It might be good for you to begin to cultivate gratitude. What do you have for which to be thankful? How can you be more grateful to God for what he's given you? What's a thing for which you should be thankful to God for? How about the cross? Can we start there? Right? But also, how many good things do you have in life? How many of you ate today? Praise God, right? I bet, although it's possible that I'm wrong, And if I'm wrong, let me know. I bet none of you crawled into a garbage bin to find your food today either. Thank God for any good he's given you. How many of you breathed today? You grateful to God for that? It's his air, you know. Watch gratitude help you find joy in whatever state of life you're in so that you don't have to rebel against God and try to experience or take what is not yours. You know, when I think about this command, guys, this is the stuff I've been saying. This is pretty far away from our present culture, isn't it? I would suggest to you that the kind of teaching that I've just done is the kind of teaching that most Christians are most ashamed of in Scripture. We don't mind about talking about forgiveness to the world, do we? We like telling people they can be forgiven. We don't mind arguing that God is the creator. But when it comes to the idea that God has a holy standard for our bodies, for our sexuality, when it comes to the idea that God has a holy standard for our speech, I think we kind of blush. I think we kind of duck our heads and feel... A little ashamed. Because we don't want the world to think that, oh, we're hung up on that. But listen to me. When we call a choice or a behavior sin, we're not doing it out of hate for anybody. We're not doing it out of a desire to be cruel. Right? 
We speak of as sinful what God's word says is sinful because in love we want all people to see their sin, confess their sin, turn from their sin, and run to Jesus to find salvation. So we've got to be honest about sin. Everyone who's ever been saved had to turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And all who are saved should want other people to turn from their sin and trust in Christ too. So Christians, if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to see that following God's standard for human sexuality and sexual behavior is absolutely vital. I'm going to give you one more quick point to prove that and we'll be done. Point number four, understand the importance of purity. Verses 5 through 7 say, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. Y'all, this is a sober thought. And I'm going to say it again. This is absolutely clear. Was there anything unclear in those verses? You said, well, I don't know what those words mean. Verse 5 says, sexual immorality is a mark of being lost. I don't want to soften that too quickly. Did you hear that? Sexual immorality is a mark of lostness. Look at that. See it. Those whose lives are marked by this kind of rebellion against God are trying to show that they have not repented of sin and come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks time and time again of sexual immorality as a sin that marks a person as destined for the wrath of God. I'm going to read one more to you, okay? 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Listen to the word of God. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You could find very similar wordings, very similar points in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, in Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and lots of other places. God is clear in his word that sexual sin is a very big deal. He's clear that it is a rebellion against God. He's clear that it is a rebellion against God that brings forth the judgment of God. He's clear that it may indeed be a sign that the judgment of God is already upon you or it's already upon the people around whom you live. Paul warns, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Paul wants us to understand that though the world around us will try to pretend that sexual sin is not really sin. And they do that all the time, right? 
They try to say, this is okay, and if you don't agree, you're on the wrong side of history. Or they may say to you that if you sin, it's not a big deal. But God says otherwise. Hear the seriousness of these words. Understand the importance of purity. And now, before we lose it here, let me offer us grace one more time, because some of you were hurt by that last bit. I don't want to hurt you. Jesus died to suffer the wrath of God for the sins of every single person who will ever come to him. And you don't have to face the wrath of God. Many of us have failed. Listen to me. I'm not saying if you are a Christian, you've never failed since you've been a Christian. Many of us, since we came to faith, have failed. Amen? Is that true? Anybody perfect in this room since they were saved? No. Many of us have failed. Many of us have been hurt by others. Many of us have hurt others. Many of us hate what we have been. Many of us hate who we've been. But we don't have to be consumed by this thought. Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus lived out perfection. And Jesus bore our penalty. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. The perfect life of Jesus is counted as ours so the Lord can see us as righteous and welcome us into his heaven. So listen to me. If you have never done so, run to Jesus, confess your sin to him, and Jesus will never reject anybody who comes to him in genuine faith and true repentance. I don't care what you've been. It doesn't matter what you've been. You can be forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be made new by the grace of God. You can have life that will satisfy your soul and please the Lord. And Christian, even now if there is sexual sin in your life, here's what you need to do. You do need to see that it matters because it does. You do need to sorrow over what you've done because it's sin. And turn away from your sin Run back to Jesus and seek to repent by living in purity. If you need help, we're here to counsel you. We're here to come alongside you in this journey. And know this, the grace of Jesus makes us pure. And the grace of Jesus protects us and perfects us before the Lord. The truth is, we live like Jesus when we show love toward others. And loving others like Jesus cannot include sexual sin. Sexual immorality is a greedy taking of what is not yours to take. It's a greedy wanting what's, yours, what's not yours to want. Putting on the love of Jesus includes that you protect other people from the destructive path of sexual sin. Let's pray together, friends.